Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Biggest thing that's changed about photography in the last 10 years is not that we take most of our pictures with a phone. It's actually the subject of those pictures. In case you can't see, that's a picture of me. It's called a selfie. Samsung says that 30% of all photos taken on any device by 18 to 24-year-olds are selfies. And HTC says that 90% of all photos taken on cell phones are selfies. It's an interesting thing considering that the word selfie didn't exist until about 2005 to 2010. And so in just five to ten years, uh, we have developed a word uh, for selfishness raised to its ultimate level. Now, I'm not being an old guy here today, okay? I mean, I am an old guy, but I'm not being an old guy when I say that the word self occurs only three times in the entire Bible. Three times. Now, it does occur 33 other times combined with another word like self-control or self-condemned or self-confidence. But the word self only occurs three times in the entire Bible. Now, as Jesus followers, or as those who are here to find out if you want to be Jesus followers, the reason I raised this point this morning is because I want you to see the vast chasm there is between the ways of the world and the ways of Jesus when it comes to understanding the word self. The world says, go for it. And it means anything that makes me feel good in the moment. In fact, this culture basically says, whatever makes me feel better, that's a good thing. If you want to have a successful advertisement, all you have to do is prove to me that you have something that's faster, better, quicker, whatever, that's going to make me feel better. And uh, the, the thing is, you know, it's sort of like this. It, this hasn't yet become part of our culture where I can say what I want is what's important. And if you have it, I'll get it from you no matter what it takes. We haven't got to that point yet. But the word selfie didn't exist 10 years ago. So, you see, we were born selfish. In fact, back when I was a teenager 40 years ago, we were selfish too. But the difference was we knew we were selfish. And the culture knew selfishness was not a good thing. But selfishness is applauded these days. And the truth of the matter is... When we look at this culture, one of the major distinctions between the culture of 40, 50 years ago in America and today is selfishness has been lifted to the level of an art form. It's called selfie, you see. So, as I said, selfishness goes way back farther than 40 years ago. It goes back to the beginning of the human race. When Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, were created perfectly and everything was perfect and they had a relationship with God and they got to speak to God every single day. And you would think that that would be enough for them, but it wasn't because somebody, the devil, convinced them that the self and the self-will was more important than a relationship with God. And so selfishness became the first sin. And down through the ages, we've all been born with it. We've all been in the prison of selfishness. Last week, if you were here, we had a chair sitting over there, and we had a guy, or yeah, it was a guy in all three services, that had handcuffs on, and it, and, and it talked about the prison. We talked about the prison that we're in from birth, and we're in that prison 
And if you don't believe me, just walk up to a two-year-old that's playing with a toy and say, hey, can I have that? And he or she will not say, sure, here, why don't we share? There will be one word. They will grab it close and say, mine. And, and you know, selfishness in a two-year-old can be sort of cute, can't it? But selfishness in a 22-year-old, 52-year-old, not so much. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to talk about today is all the different kinds of selfishness. Really, it's going to wrap up because two-year-old selfishness is just mine. But adult selfishness can look like a lot of different things. It can look like I'm smarter than you because I want to be higher than you. So I'm prettier than you. I'm faster than you. I'm richer than you. I'm whatever than you because when I draw attention to me, that makes me feel better. And so sometimes I put you down to make me feel better. That's selfish, right? And so we're, we're going to look at uh, selfishness in Jesus' day and how Jesus overcame it. It's going to be a very familiar account. We've heard this probably, if you've ever been in church for more than a couple years, you've heard this parable of Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we can be set free from the specific prison of selfishness. Remember that prison didn't have any walls and sometimes it's false ideas, but in this case, it, it's the freedom that God gives us. Remember we said last week, God's free, freedom has boundaries. So selfishness says, anything I want is good. And the freedom that God has is very different than that. And we're going to talk about that extensively this morning. Because God's boundaries for us are always the best boundaries. Because in the boundaries of God, we are free. Jesus said, we talked about last week, if, if you know the truth, you know, the truth will set you free. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're finishing up this series, Amazing Grace. And God's amazing grace is given to us by Jesus, as we said during the Lord's Supper, through his death on the cross and, most importantly, through his resurrection. Because if he just died, that really didn't set us free. That paid the penalty. But when he rose from the dead, it shows that we're free, that the power of the Spirit of God is a power that can conquer death. And, and so as we look today at how we can exercise this freedom, I want you to know something. Once you're free, you, you can do two things with that freedom. You can just sort of accept it and keep it, or you can nourish it so it grows, and you can become freer and freer and freer as you get older, and that's really the preference, and, and today's take-home point, and for those of you here for the first time, we seek to make one point every week, and here it is. Our freedom grows fastest when we share it with others. Once we receive God's amazing grace, we're born again, to use Jesus' words, we become new people, and our freedom can grow fastest when we share it with others. What's the antidote to selfishness? It's sharing. It's giving something that we have away. Because when we give what we have away, the, the feeling that we have is of selflessness. We're thinking of the other person. We're not thinking of ourselves. And so the best way to get over selfishness is to... Share. And I'm going to assume right now for the rest of the message that everybody in the room believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, has trusted Him or as Savior and Lord, and is living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that's not true of everybody, but if it's not true of you this morning, just hold that thought, okay? Because I believe that if you listen carefully, by the end of this message, you're going to be convinced it's the best way to live. So please, hold on to that idea that Jesus Christ came to rescue us from the prison of selfishness and other sin and to set us free. Before we get to the, to the familiar scripture that we're going to look at today, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and for sending Jesus to free us from the prisons of sin and selfishness. Fill us right now with your Holy Spirit that we may live freely and share our freedom with as many others 
as you put in our spheres of influence this week. As we turn to your word written, we pray that you will use it to glorify yourself, to teach us, and to guide us to living more completely for you in your amazing grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's scripture is found in Luke chapter 10, and we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Good Samaritan in a bit, but it was written by a man named Luke. I mean, the, the, it was written down by a man named Luke. Luke was a doctor. He was a Gentile before he became a Christian, which simply means that he was not a Jew. And Luke tells us in chapter 1, the first four verses, that he had a purpose for writing the gospel. None of the other gospel writers tell us at the beginning why they did this. And Luke was not around when Jesus was walking on the earth. He tells us that. But he, what he did was he looked at all the written accounts of Jesus' life, and then he interviewed eyewitnesses who had been around during Jesus' life. And then, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote down an account, an orderly account, he says, of all that took place in Jesus' life, so that this guy to whom Luke wrote the gospel, named Theophilus, which literally means one who loves God, would be able to be assured to know that his faith was true. And so, um, this uh, parable in Luke chapter 10, and actually it's, a, it's an interaction between an expert of the law and then a parable, um, doesn't occur in any of the other Gospels. And so we might say, did Luke make this up? No, Luke didn't make this up, but he thought it was very important because of two reasons. Number one is because in it, Jesus tells us how to have eternal life. If you want to know anything, probably you would want to know how to have eternal life, right? And, and then the second thing it does, it shows us how to pay it forward. Now, pay it forward is a modern expression. It's the title of today's message. And all pay it forward means is once I've received something good, I, I pass it on to somebody else. Because actually in paying it forward is when we experience the fullest benefit of any blessing. So, um, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. We're going to look at it a verse or two at a time. And it, it says this. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So let me ask you a question. Was the expert in the law being selfish? Of course he was. The reason he stood up was to test Jesus. And we're always being selfish when we test someone because we, we, he thought he was smarter than Jesus. I mean, Jesus was gaining a lot of notoriety among the people. He was becoming popular. And so this expert in the law stood up and he was going to show everybody that he was smarter than Jesus. And that's what we do when we're selfish. We want other people to know that we're smarter than them. We want other people to know that there's something about us that's better than them. And so people can look at us and go, wow. And that's what the expert in the law was looking for. He was looking for an opportunity to show all these people who'd been following Jesus just because he was, you know, healing sick people, casting out demons, and raising people from the dead, that he wasn't all that. So, Jesus knows what the expert in the law is doing. I mean, he's the son of God, after all. And so, he knows that this expert in the law is not going to be able to resist answering his own question. So here's what Jesus does. It says, Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? You see, Jesus didn't need to show up the guy. He already knew who he was. When you know who you are, you don't have to be selfish. He knew that he's God. And when we know we're children of God, we don't, we don't need to show other people up. And, and so he, he just gives the guy a chance to answer the question. And he knows that this guy had an answer in mind, but he wants to see what it is. And so the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's the right answer. 
That is the right answer. If you want to have eternal life, if I want to have eternal life, we have to love the Lord our God, the only God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, and then we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, notice what, what's not in there. Me, myself, and I. It has nothing to do with, well, you say, wait, it says love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, it does. But even in that, it's not saying I should be, you know, lifting myself up. I should be treating you the way I would want to be treated. That's really what it's saying. And so the thought process is put God first, put others second, and then the selfie comes third. Right? After we've put God first, after we've served others, then we can start to think about ourselves. And so this is cool. Jesus says, right, right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Jesus really doesn't care if we know the right answers. He doesn't care if we know the right answers. He wants us to do the right answers. You see, it isn't enough to know that we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not enough to know that we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have to do it. And, and, and the thing about the Christian faith that's so different is the other faiths out there, they all are trying to do it so that God will love them. It's the opposite with our faith. We do it because God loves us. We don't do stuff so God will love us. We do stuff because God loves us. And Jesus says, you're right. God told you, and, and this is, I mean, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the Old Testament. That's way back in, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Leviticus. That's where the people of Israel found out what they were supposed to do to have eternal life. And Jesus had just affirmed it. But he said, it's not enough to know it. You have to do it. Now, the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, that might seem like an odd question. Who's my neighbor? But the Jews had an answer to that question. The Jews had decided, that the, the righteous Jews, had decided that a neighbor was a Jew. And, and not just any Jew, but a Jew who was following the law. So the religious leader, this expert in the law, he was asking a question. Maybe he thought Jesus could stumble yet, that Jesus had already shown. <laughs> you can't really fool Jesus. But this guy's maybe thinking, maybe Jesus will define neighbor too broadly or too narrowly. And I can still show the crowd that Jesus really doesn't know what's going on. So Jesus doesn't answer the question with a simple answer. He tells a story. He says this. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Huh. So we, we may be living in the 21st century, say, a priest? That's like a preacher? Sees this guy in need and he walks by on the other side and we go, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, it does. If you're a Jew, it makes sense because, you know, if you're a priest in those days and you touch a dead thing, you're unclean for seven days and you can't carry out your priestly duties. And so it would make sense. I mean, the guy couldn't touch that person, right? It's a trick question. Of course he could if he cared about the person. If he really saw that person as a neighbor, he would touch him whether he thought he was dead or not. I mean, really, he's going to be unclean for seven days if the guy's dead so he doesn't touch him? What Jesus is trying to see, and they don't see it yet, what he's trying to help them see is, you know, a neighbor is somebody who's in need, and a neighbor is somebody who helps somebody in need. Pretty much a neighbor is everybody. But so far, they're not getting it. So Jesus continues, 
It says a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. So a temple assistant's like assistant minister, you know, and he does the same thing for the same reason. He doesn't want to get unclean by touching this possibly, oh, could be a trap too. Because everybody knew that when you went from Jerusalem down to Jericho, there were thieves. And they would hide, you know, behind the bushes, if there were bushes, or rocks more likely in Israel. All right? And they would hide and they would put somebody out on the road who looked like he was half dead. And then when you tried to help them, they would jump you. So you would be risking something to help this person. Ah, maybe Jesus is trying to say that too. Sometimes you get hurt when you help people. Sometimes it happens. But what's more important? Well, we know what's more important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor. As yourself. So now Jesus continues and he says, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Now, the New Living Translation puts an adjective in there, despised, that isn't in there in the original Greek text. You know why they put the word despised in there? Because we have heard the story, and we're modern people, and we've heard it so much that we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. There is no such thing as a Good Samaritan in Jewish thought in that day. You know, selfishness isn't just individual, it can be collective. And the Jews all thought they were better than the Samaritans. It would be like if this parable was the parable of the good drug dealer. In our day, well, there's no such thing as a good drug dealer. A drug dealer has compassion? Well, that's what it says here. I mean, when the religious leaders who were obviously, there was more than one expert in the law in the crowd, there were other religious leaders, and they were listening. And when Jesus said, a Samaritan came by and showed compassion, and they're going, a, a Samaritan? Compassion? Right. You see, it, it's impossible. This, this is just impossible. And then it says, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. Then next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, we don't know if the Samaritan believed in God. He could have, but we don't know. We don't know if the Samaritan would eventually follow Jesus. I mean, after all, it's just a story, right? But what we do know is this Samaritan was Jesus. In fact, down through the ages in the Christian church, when people look at parables as allegories, Jesus is the, the Samaritan. I mean, the Samaritan is Jesus. Because what does he do? He helps a guy who can't give him any payment in return. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Jesus helps us. We don't, what can we give him in return? Nothing. You know, it says all of our acts are as filthy rags in the scriptures. So no matter what we do back, we can never pay for it. And this guy can't pay for it because he's unconscious. And, and the Samaritan, he pays forward the blessings he's received from God. What does he do? He helps the guy first by healing or bandaging up his wounds, puts him on his own beast. He walks so the other guy can ride. He takes him to the nearest inn, which may have been a Jewish inn where he wouldn't even have been welcome. But since it was a Jewish guy... You know, he would, the Jewish guy would have been welcome. And then he pays for, uh, you know, whatever is needed. Well, he takes care of him. And then he has to leave. And he says, here, here's some advance money. If it takes more, the next time I come back, I'll pay you. Wow. That's Jesus if I ever heard of it. And that's what we're supposed to do. We have received incredible blessing at the hand of God. We have received. In, in fact, when I say that's what we're supposed to do, look what Jesus says. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Interesting. He wouldn't say the Samaritan. 
He, he wouldn't even use the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. Huh. Yes. The one who shows mercy is like God. The one who shows mercy is the neighbor. The one who shows mercy is the one who understands grace. Because we understand that everything that we have is a gift from God. And, you know, back to the selfishness of our culture. We deserve, we deserve, we deserve. We don't deserve anything. Well, we do. We deserve to burn in hell forever. That's what we deserve. But God gives us a fresh new life. Even though all we are is absorbed in our selfies, God gives us a free and abundant life. And now here's the thing. Jesus says again, yes. Now you go and do the same. Punchline. If you know what's going to get you eternal life, do it. If you know how to be a neighbor, do it. It's so simple. Most of the stuff that Jesus taught was pretty simple, right? And as we look at this conclusion to the story about the good Samaritan, the man who was Jesus to this guy who was almost dead, and then Jesus turns to the expert in the religious law and he says, go and do the same. There's nothing else for the guy to say, is there? He really doesn't. There's no comeback. The only thing he can do is go and do the same. And it's the same for us. We listen to this account, and maybe you've heard it 50 times or 100 times in your life. Maybe it's the first time you've ever heard it. But, but the message is so simple, it only takes one time. The expert in the law didn't have to go back home and write a book about what Jesus said. He, he knew what to do. He knew that he was going to find some guy in a ditch someday, and he had to help him. Or else he would not be a neighbor. He, he knew that he had received mercy, and, and so he needed to show mercy. Or, or else he would be, you know, taking the amazing grace of God and sort of just sort of stomping it into the dirt. So even though we've turned away from God, even though we continue to live those selfie kind of lives, God will never abandon us. He will never leave us. His amazing grace is always there for us. And that's why today's commitment is this. It's simple. I will find a neighbor to help every day this week. Now, it's hard in this culture, isn't it? Isn't it hard in this culture to think about somebody else because all the, I mean, we're going to go out and as soon as we go out, there are going to be, you know, radio commercials, TV commercials. Heck, when I open up my cell phone to see if the pirates lost again, which they did yesterday, um, at the top and bottom of the thing are advertisements that if I just click on those, I can find out how to have a better life for me, right? It's so hard to avoid. And it's not a new thing, as I said. Back when I was a youth pastor, first started out in the ministry 30 years ago, I was a youth pastor. And believe it or not, I used to sit with my guitar and I used to lead singing at youth group. I know, you can't believe that. You don't want to hear it. But anyway, we used to sing this song back in the... I'll tell you when after I read it, okay? Uh, I'm going to read the verse. I'm not going to sing it. It's called Rhythm Guitar. And the chorus of Rhythm Guitar goes like this up on the screen, I think. Nobody wants to play Rhythm Guitar behind Jesus. Everybody wants to be the lead singer in the band. But it's hard to get a beat on what's divine when everybody's pushing for the head of the line. I don't think it's working out at all the way that it's planned. Now, if that sounds like lyrics from the 80s, it's because it is. <laughs> but the words are still true today. The 80s lyrics are still true today. It is hard. It is hard to get a beat on what's divine when everybody's pushing for the front of the line. And, and, and still nobody wants to play rhythm guitar behind Jesus. Everybody wants to be up front. But Jesus said 2,000 years ago, that's not the way to eternal life. The way to eternal life is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so simply this, go out today, find a neighbor. That's somebody in need, meet the need. Go out tomorrow, find a neighbor, somebody in need, meet the need. Now, will that make you a Christian? No. 
but it will demonstrate that you understand what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who's received God's amazing grace and is paying it forward. And our freedom grows fastest when we share it with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you love us so much that even when we abandoned you, you wouldn't abandon us. I thank you for the message that Jesus gave the expert in the law because he gave it to us as he gave it to him. And I pray today as we go out that what we are and what we do will be good neighbors. That we will be those who have received your amazing grace and will pay it forward to others so that you may be glorified and so that others may know your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.